be a well-established fact right now in America that conservatives are happy, happier and young liberals are, are the least happy, the, the most mentally ill. Um, what is that about? The conservative mindset is that conservatism is associated with this idea of thicker boundaries to the self, um, whereas being on the left, is it's, it's more thin-bounded where you have less of a sort of stable sense of self and there's more variability like do I choose this gender or that gender mm. um, do I choose this this way to be or that way to be you know sexual sexuality uh, more of those questions which generates a certain amount of anime and a certain amount of uncertainty and a certain amount of so I just think it's it's a less stable sense of self mm. uh, less integrated perhaps into community life Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Eric Kaufman. Eric is a political scientist who's written several great books, including Will the Religious Inherit the Earth and White Shift. Eric was a professor at Birkbeck College, University of London for many years. I think he was actually the head of the department there before he was pushed out for his political views. So we talk about that story at the top of this interview. And then we talk about a whole bunch of topics. We discuss the sociologist Daniel Bell. We talk about why birth rates are declining in the secular world and why it matters. We talk about high birth rate populations like Hasidic Jews and the Amish. We talk about the tension between liberal politics on immigration and liberal politics on LGBTQ. We talk about why Canada and Scotland are so much further to the left on gender and trans issues than America is. And finally, we talk about why it is that conservatives appear to be happier in the data than liberals generally, and why religious people also tend to be happier than secular people, and what lessons, if any, we can draw from that. This was one of my favorite podcasts I've done this year, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, Eric Kaufman. Okay, Eric Kaufman. It's great to finally get you on the podcast. Coleman, it's great to be here. I'm glad we were able to do it. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a while and, and reading you for a while. Uh, you you have excellent books uh, that I can't recommend enough. Um, you're really, uh, it's, it's really a pleasure to f finally get you on. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, so, and it's, it's all those years since we first met at the uh, 2018 Heterodox Academy. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Can't believe it's been five years. Jesus. Um, so... So uh, before we get into your books and, and your writing, let's just talk about your new uh, affiliation. You've had a major uh, change for, uh, after 20 years. Can you talk a little bit about, um, about what happened here? Yeah, so I was a tenured professor at uh, Birkbeck College, University of London, and you know really enjoyed my time there. I think, however, I mean, what, what started to happen, I mean, it's a phenomenon that, of course, happened on both sides of the Atlantic with the rise of progressive illiberalism. Um, in, it happened a bit later in Britain. Uh, so essentially, there's no problem with the, the sort of management of the university who acted very well, but, um, and my colleagues who I'd known for many years. But there were, we, you know, we got a new colleague in who was you know, an absolute ideologue, young, uh, young woman who came into the department. I was head of department. And, and so you, you might have thought that, that the power might reside with me, right, in this relationship. Uh, but in any case, she didn't like that I was taking part in a, a debate over um, a, you know, ethnic diversity and immigration in Britain, even though the debate, you know, essentially we had more leftists than people on the right. We had 
more people of color than not, etc. But is, is it awkward to name this person or? Um, no, no, her name. Yeah, I mean, her name's Lisa Tilly. Okay. Uh, so yeah, she or kind of uh, anyway. She claimed to have left the university because she didn't like my views. She claimed oh, my views made her feel unsafe. And you know, so when she, did when and, did she leave? Well, she she claimed to that that she left uh, you know the job that she loved because of me and then etc. Of course, what happened was she actually just took a job next door at a university called SOAS, but that wasn't made public in her uh, sort of public resignation in 2021. Uh, but but as part of this and a, and a series of other processes, what occurred was, you know, there's a lot of publicity. Yeah, this in, was reported at the time, right? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. reported. It wasn't the only thing. There were a couple of other events. There's the odd Twitter mobbing and the odd kind of open letter. But the net result of all this was just a certain, it injected a kind of awkwardness into everyday collegiate academic life um and and so it had yeah. it, it had a kind of ripple effects on other people who shared her view of you or, or they didn't like share that? her view she was actually relatively unpopular mm-hmm. uh, and even though you know this is a conventional department it leans left but she wasn't a, a popular figure it's not that it's more that because of the you know the, the, the this making the press and radical students and and alumni writing in and et cetera. It just created an environment of awkwardness between people that I'd known for a long time. Hmm. It's just that I knew what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. They knew that I knew what they were thinking. And, and, and so it just makes things a little bit weirder. And, mm. and, and so I would say, now, was this enough to make me leave? No. And I didn't leave and I wouldn't have left. Then the university had some financial issues, uh, which, which, you know, the combination of those two things eventually, plus... The opportunity of joining the University of Buckingham, which is probably going to, well, it has the only option or the only chance of becoming Britain's only free speech university. Out of 181 institutions, it's a small private university. It was sort of founded by Margaret Thatcher in the late 70s, but it still has a, you know, it's broadly a left-leaning professoriate, left-leaning student body, but it's scores very well on free speech uh, indicators. And so the aim is to try and build up a kind of heterodox social science center there and to try and kind of explore topics which you either can't explore or you can only explore at your cost uh, at, in a regular university. Now, this isn't sort of like extreme stuff that you can only publish in the Journal of Controversial Ideas like the ethics of pedophilia or race mm-hmm. and IQ or anything, but yeah. there's just a vast vast field of studies that have not been undertaken uh, because it's just very difficult to get published or uh, if you do take certain positions on issues, uh, you know, for example, gender or race inequality, if you were to explain that for reasons other than discrimination, then, then that's going to be difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Overall, colleges in America versus colleges in the UK, which score better on free speech and viewpoint diversity? I mean, I think Britain is a little bit better. Not that they're great on free speech necessarily, but they don't have the sort of DEI administrative bloat because they don't have the money to afford that. Um, they also, it's not been quite as bad. Um, now, there's been quite a bit of cancellation, particularly of gender critical uh, scholars and harassment of them. So it is bad in certain respects, but I don't sense quite as much activism on the part of the students, and certainly there isn't the administrator class. Having said all that, the same trends of rising, no platformings, rising 
targeting of academics, not to quite the same extent, but it's still there in Britain. It takes off more like 2017 rather than 2015 in the U.S., but it peaks around the same period, 2020, 2021, uh, and then it starts to go away. The, the, there is a lot of movement to, quote-unquote, decolonize the curriculum. That's kind of a mainstream thing now in Britain. So the emphasis there is is, is less so on the kind of anti-racist um, reckoning, but much more on the kind of colonial reckoning, Britain's colonial past and kind of wanting to decolonize reading lists. So that'll mm-hmm. be, that's sort of a push. In some cases, it's, it's aggressive and, and heads of department are asking you for your reading lists and sending them back to you for correction. But that's department by department. It's not a university-wide policy. So, uh, w- why does there seem to be so much more gender ideology in Canada and, and say, Scotland, as opposed to America? Um, well, okay, so Canada, you know, where I'm from originally, and, and Scotland, what's going on? So in the Canadian case, I think this is shaped by the politics of the country. Canada, you may or may not be aware, was essentially a British dominion. The identity of Canada after the American Revolution was as the British America. Um, that lasted until the decline of the British Empire in the 50s and 60s. You then had a vacuum of identity, which was filled by the idea that Canada is going to be this moralistic left-wing America. Uh, and so that was the new Canadian identity. And that's actually quite a hospitable structure for doing left-wing radicalism. Um, and so what you get in Canadian politics is you don't really get much of a conservative opposition, especially not on cultural grounds. Um, and so the left has a freer hand. The, it's not that the Canadian left is crazier than the American left. It's not. It's, it's largely a mirror image. But the difference is there just isn't the opposition there the way you have here. Here it's a fight. There it has been a, a steamroll, although it's interesting that we mention that. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this million-person march that took place yesterday in Canadian cities no, against gender, uh, t- gender ideology in schools. Yeah, so that was a, uh, that's an example of some of this very grassroots mobilization, which has to occur because... Was that, was that metaphorically a million people, or was it... Um, the count has yet to come in, and okay. I don't know how many. There were apparently 10,000 10, in Ottawa. I mean, it's not been covered by the mainstream media. It will be covered by the alternative and the, and the conservative, conservative press as well. So we'll, we'll have to see what the total number was. But there is a kind of very uh, grassrootsy resistance because the political class is not the kind of conservative politicians are not resisting. Now, that, too, has just started to change. So there has just recently been a few provincial premiers, starting in New Brunswick, which is kind of a very important turning point. Blaine Higgs there uh, essentially said that parents will have to be notified if their uh, child transitions at school and uses different pronouns. Um, It's not a ban. It's just to say parents should be notified. And surveys show that like 85% of Canadians think that's the right policy. Yeah. Uh, it was seen as awful transphobia, hate, etc. by Justin Trudeau and by the, the commentariat. But a number of premiers now followed suit in the, the where you have a conservative administration. So there is a slight, the first green shoots, I suppose, of a, of a political pushback. But compared to the U.S. case where you've got, you know, red states, which are really in the forefront of resisting this and you have blue state it's nothing like that it's just mm-hmm. it's dominated more by you might say the blue side mm-hmm. um with a little bit of much more moderate resistance and scotland scotland okay 
So here's an interesting one. Um, attitudes on gender ideology in Scotland are actually more anti the gender affirming ideology That's what than I would in think. England. Yeah. So in Scotland, you know, you'd but, think but, by but looking at policy the attitudes, wise, it's the reverse. But policy wise, it's the reverse. Now, why is that the case? So, um, of course, in poli political science, we have this term salience. You, you probably know about where you know. In, the attitudes of the population might be very against something, but it, if it has a very low priority or salience for them. So if they're mainly concerned about uh, Scottish independence from, from Britain, then the issue of gender ideology falls down their priority list, or they don't think about it, or they're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. That was the case in Scotland. So mm -hmm. the Scottish National Party could be really, really sort of pushing the trans agenda, so they wanted to sort of lower the age of, of, of consent for this. And, and so they, they had this sort of agenda, and they were getting away with it until um, the government, in, Richie Sunak in, in, in the British government more or less said they were going to contest uh, the, the authority, because it, it has implications. If you can easily get a, a gender recognition certificate in Scotland, and if you then move to England, mm -hmm. it has all kinds of implications Britain-wide. So this mm -hmm. was then being contested. Um, the, the Scottish government tried to pretend that this was sort of infringement on Scottish kind of sovereignty by the English. Um, but then you had in the press a picture of uh, this very tattooed male rapist who was going to, to a women's prison. And that blew up in the press and, and puts Nicola Sturgeon of the SNP on the defensive. So she was asked, you know, is this person Isla Bryson? Is this, is this a man or a woman? You know, is, is Isla Bryson a woman? And she refused. She said... Either Bryson is a rapist, you know, she wouldn't, she wouldn't answer the question, mm. but eventually it led, it was one of the ingredients in her downfall. So I would say Scotland's kind of turned around on the gender question, but it took that vivid political image to raise the salience and cut through into mm. people. And then eventually they said, ah, oh, actually this is kind of crazy. Okay, so let's back up in your own intellectual life. I know that Daniel Bell is very important for you. What is it that, uh, what insights did he have that, that have been the most crucial for, for your uh, intellectual journey? Yeah, I think Bell is a, is a huge figure. Uh, of course, one of the original New York intellectuals, that sort of, uh, you know, Jewish intellectual, largely Jewish intellectual tradition going from left to right in a way in the, in the 60s, well, not earlier really as a reaction to, to communism and, and Stalinism, but then in the 60s responding to the student movements. And what Bell and Nathan Glazer and, and a number of other New York intellectuals were doing was they were, they were witnessing uh, a very emotional, what they would perceive as a very anti-intellectual, anti-academic standards kind of movement uh, where people these student protesters weren't interested in debate. They weren't interested in reforming institutions. They just wanted to sit in and protest and yell. And, and that really struck them as, as kind of a threat to the liberal tradition. And, and so some of the writing of Bell uh, on the excesses of the student movement. Now, of course, he then wrote The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism in 1976, which kind of brought together some of his thinking on this and, and really started to develop a theory of the cultural left. Because I think that's what was interesting to me is, you know, we, if you study the left, most books will simply talk about the Marxist left and, and various strands of Trotskyism and Leninism, whatever. But it's this sort of cultural left which interests me more and I think is more relevant 
since the late 60s. It's this cultural identity version of the left. Um, and Bell does a good job of kind of tracing that back actually to an earlier period, the rise of modern art, the revolt against tradition, um, and that, that this, this opposition to tradition, the opposition to, um, what's the word, I guess, taking in a work of art and reflecting on its depth and its meaning and replacing that with the shock of the new and the different. Um, I thought that was really, I'd never read anything like that. And I just, that, so that book really was influential. And then I, I tried to, you know, I had a, I, I had a little bit of a correspondence uh, with Bell in the, I guess, the early 2000s, maybe. No, maybe as far back as the mid-90s. And I, I luckily managed to meet him a couple of years before he died and, and had a good mm. chat with him as mm. well. So that was a high point. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into your book, Will the Religious Inherit the Earth? Now, you wrote this book, I believe, in 2011, right? Yeah. You are published in 2011, over 10 years ago. Um, since then, the issue of differential birth rates between the religious and the secular, I, I would say, has risen, has risen in prominence. Um, Elon Musk has even, I think, talked about it or tweeted about it. Um, I mean, this is, I, I view this as one of the most interesting uh, and consequential long-term trends that is that is the like rarely discussed relative to how interesting and important it is um so can you briefly sketch out your thesis in that book uh you know what what is it about the different birth rates between the very religious and the secular that has long-term implications for uh you know liberal democracy yeah so i think there are really two things going on um one is that the religious parts of the world, you know, basically all of the world's population growth is taking place in a kind of tropical belt that is 95, where 95% of people are religious, have a religion and believe in religion. Um, the parts of the world that are aging and declining, East Asia, Europe, and increasingly now North America, uh, are the most secular parts of the world. So globally, the world is becoming more religious simply as a byproduct of the fact that um, people are getting religion the old-fashioned way through birth, and most of the births are, are in religious countries. So that's happening globally. Now, if you then pr bring in migration, you're, you're getting a migration south to north of religious people into increasingly secular contexts. So mm -hmm. if you look at cities like London, Paris, etc., um, they are the most religious part of their respective countries because of immigration of people from essentially the, the developing world, which is religious. So you're getting... Whereas classically, the cities would be the most secular section. Right. Yeah. And they are... I mean, if you just take the, the say, the white British population, mm -hmm. you know, London white British people might be slightly more secular... Uh, although I think actually that's disputable. I mean, but they may be ever so slightly more secular in certain neighborhoods mm -hmm. um, than white British people outside. But but that's not much difference there. Um, but yeah, it's because if you look in London churches, you know, it's it's upwards of two thirds um, ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. and, you know, these are people from Africa, some east from Eastern Europe, but from all over the world. And that's really what what's keeping Christianity going uh, in Britain in a way. Um, so. What is the, the message there? I mean, the message there is essentially that at the global level and perhaps increasingly at the level of Western countries, religion is returning via demography. So demography 
uh, is bolstering religion. Now, it's also true, of course, that countries are continuing to secularize. Now, in Europe, where you've got typically 5% of the population attending in many countries on a weekly basis, religion is already very weak. But the proportion of, say, English people who claim to tick the Christian box in terms of their religion has dropped from 72% in 2001 to 46% in 2021 on the census. There's a census question. Mm -hmm. So there's been a big drop in even Christian affiliation and Mm -hmm. identification. And we've seen that in the U.S. as well. So you're getting the kind of, if you like, the host population um, becoming more secular. And you're getting religious immigration. The other thing, of course, is that at the children of immigrants, especially if they're non-Christian, will retain their religion because the religion is part of their ethnic identity. Part of being a Bangladeshi is being Muslim. Mm-hmm. Part of being Indian is being Hindu. And so actually they retain into the second, third generation their religion. And that means you're getting a buildup of religious affiliation and even practice, uh, particularly in the immigration gateway cities. And that's really increasingly the future of many of these Western countries as their populations are ethnically shifting. So it's not just an ethnic shift, it's a shift to some degree away from secular towards somewhat more uh, religious societies. And so that's kind of one trend. Now, the other, the other thing that's going on is these very, very highly world-denying, uh, call them fundamentalists. I, I, fundamentalist is the wrong term, but world-denying, um, highly religious sects like the Amish, Hutterites, ultra-Orthodox Jews, um, to some extent, the, the traditionalist Calvinists in the Netherlands are another example. You know, these are groups that have birth rates that are several multiples of the rest of the population. And not only that, but, you know, if the birth rate of the Amish, let's say it's gone from seven children per woman to five children per woman, you know, if the hosts, the rest of the population goes from five children per woman to one ch- uh, child per woman, mm-hmm. you know, five to one versus seven to five. So it, it was seven to five. It's now five to one. You just look at those ratios. Mm-hmm. Five to one is a much bigger difference mm-hmm. than seven to five. And so over time, the shift is, is very rapid in the population. I, think I, I just looked it up. I th- tell me if I'm wrong. I think the Amish population in Pennsylvania has doubled in the past 20 years. Yeah, they, they have a, a doubling time roughly of 25 years. Yeah. Um, now, if you now they kept that rate going for 100 years. If you were to actually keep that going, if they kept that going for another 200 years, they're pushing 300 million. Now, because we can have a whole debate about what it might, what might happen. You might get a kind of moderating uh, sect to church moderating movement, and we've seen that amongst some religious sects, and that could take some of the steam out of their birth rate and retention rate. But that may or may not happen. We don't know if it'll happen. I mean, similarly with the ultra-Orthodox Jewish population, you know, the Jewish population, the observant Jewish population of the United States is estimated to be a majority ultra-Orthodox by 2050. Mm. Uh, the, The Jewish first grade class in Israel in 1960 might have been a few percent ultra-Orthodox, and it's now a third. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if you and run that, the numbers that, on this, and, and it's just, that's yeah. like That's an effective birth rate alone, basically, yeah. in Israel, yeah. right? Well, there's two things, right? There's one is birth rate, but the other is retention of the children. Right. And the stricter your religion, not only do you have generally a higher birth rate, but you also have higher retention because 
you know, leaving the ultra-Orthodox is not like leaving the Episcopalians. You know, this is not something you just do on a Sunday. It's your whole life. It's your family, your friends. It's your everything. So to, to break from that is just a huge step. Mm-hmm. And so it's just not a step many people will take. Um, you'll have some uh, people who will convert away from ultra-Orthodoxity. And there's, there are all kinds of estimates of the number, but it's still a minority and it's not nearly big enough to off- offset the birth rate difference, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. You know, the only kind of revised, the only revision I would make to the book's data and findings concerns the Mormons. It does seem to be increasingly the case that the Mormons, or at least the bulk of Mormons, are kind of converging more with the general U.S. white population. I mean, the Mormons have always had a kind of Why one- is that? That's a good question. I would say it's because the Mormons are not like the Amish or the ultra-Orthodox. They're not world-denying in the same way. They're, they're a proselytizing. And once you're proselytizing, you're having to interact with uh, the wider population. And mm-hmm. that's actually – it's a plus in the, if you can get converts, but it's a minus in the sense that you are now exposed and, and adapting to modern society. And so you're then susceptible to uh, modern trends like declines in birth rates, um, right. which will – and also, you know, there's intermarriage, there's people leaving Mormonism. And so I think Mormonism does appear to be converging. Now, we'll have to watch. There may be a breakaway movement of mm-hmm. really orthodox Mormons who kind of reject this new pattern. And maybe they will then become the the Amish of the Mormons. And they will be the ones who will have the, the very high birth rates and, and the high retention rates. And So mm-hmm. we'll have to watch what happens with them. But... On the whole, because they're quite a large group, like 2% of the total population, if they had maintained their degree of, of, particularly in Utah and adjacent areas, if they maintained their birth rates. I mean, you look at something like, uh, you look at the population profile by age, by state, comparing like Colorado and, and Utah, you know, Utah's under 15 population is, you know, I think it's like 75% white. It's much whiter than surrounding particularly Colorado, uh, surrounding states, which where the older population is just as white as Utah's. Mm-hmm. But the young population in Utah is a lot whiter because of the high Mormon birth rate. I see. Uh, yeah. Um, so this, this theoretical argument, you know, like, like many predictions, it can seem abstract and not tangible yet because that this world hasn't manifested, except when you consider the case of Israel, where uh, which in some way could be the canary in the coal mine for the, for the rest of the world. As you said, the, the ultra-Orthodox used to be a single-digit percentage. Now they're a third of people under a certain age. And this has had an actual effect on Israeli politics, given that the ultra-Orthodox are, by and large, on the right wing of, of, of Israeli politics, which is not the same as saying they're right wing in the American context. Nevertheless, this has had a very big impact. Uh, you you see, you know the the exception from military service, which used to be not such a big deal, that the mm. ultra orthodox didn't have to serve in the military. Now that now that their population is much bigger, it's a real sticking point for the Israeli left that they don't have to serve, uh, or that uh, many of them are on welfare. And the way that the Israeli left talks about people on welfare is similar to how the American right. Sort right. of like used to talk right. about people on welfare, so it's it's inverse, and Israeli politics has moved to the right partly as a result of this, because it's a democracy and the numbers matter. Um, I think it's it's uh, 
I, I guess I just I, I just point that out to people. Like, if this seems like an abstract concern, it's already happened in Israel. Yeah, it it has happened in Israel, and I think Israel is kind of a, a perfect test case of you get a society shifting. You know, often in the West, we're used to societies shifting to the left culturally over time. Mm -hmm. Younger people being more left in their attitude or liberal in their attitudes. Um, so Israel, we've had the opposite, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah, the country is founded really by secular Jews yeah, that were socialists, right. secular socialists. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Secular or secular nationalists. And, and they have essentially lost out over time because they've lost the war of numbers. Mm -hmm. um, you've got, I mean, you have three sort of groups. You have the ultra-Orthodox, sort of, you know, classically black hats, etc. And then you have the modern Orthodox uh, who don't have they, – they certainly don't have the retention rate. So they have much lower retention because they're much more modern in their outlook. On the other hand, they're more nationalist in some ways. They're in the forefront of the settler movement. But they also have higher birth rates. Um, and so you have these two, you know, you have two kind of right of center, broadly speaking, religious groups, the modern Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, I mean, the ultra-Orthodox were interesting because they kind of rejected the, the Zionist project for a long time and came to be reconciled with it right. um, and have come to be included on the, in the right coalition. But the net result of their growth is, is that their parties get more votes. And, of course, the rabbis have a lot of sway over how people vote. And so that's a big voting block. Um, and, yeah, over time, they grow. Now, of course, there's all kinds of in Israeli politics with coalitions and so on that things can happen and scandals. But still, with all of the ups and downs, the general trend is going to be towards, um, yeah, towards them having more power and more power and eventually shifting politics. So they've shifted politics to the right. I'd say something similar as you can point to, you know, if you look at the religious right uh, in the United States, for example, I mean, there was an interesting paper that showed that three-quarters of the growth of white conservative Protestantism in the 20th century was demographic in the United States, uh, and that the growth, you know, going essentially, if you were to take people born in the early 20th century, only about a third were con from conservative denominations mm -hmm. among white Americans, and by the time we get to people born in the 1970s, it's like two-thirds. And this is a due to about a one-child demographic advantage of conservative Protestants, which is not, hmm. which is which is narrowed, but is still there. Mm -hmm. um, so even in the U.S. case, I mean, the rise of the of Reagan and the rise of the religious right is is not necessarily conceivable without also some kind of a demographic change. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, this is de demography does have an impact on politics, and this religious demography uh, is no exception to that. So what accounts for low secular birth rates? Why, why, why aren't atheists having more babies? Right. Okay. Well, um, there, there's an argument called the second demographic transition. And, you know, essentially, to try and put this in layman's terms, um, you know, when you needed children to work the land, you needed your children to care for you in old age because there was no state welfare um, and, and, and we were an agricultural society, it didn't matter whether you were highly religious or an atheist. You had to have a lot of kids. Many of them died anyway. Mm -hmm. um, it really wasn't about uh, culture. Once we get uh, prosperity, urbanization, contraception, the link between sex and procreation is broken and it's a choice. The choice in an urban society becomes very much one down to, to cultural values. So that means values are driving uh, birth, 
fertility rates much more than uh, material necessity. Uh, if you look at large-scale global data sets in developed countries, religiosity is more important even than women's education uh, in determining birth rates uh, and fertility rates. So what you have then in the sort of secular individualistic West is a kind of you know, a value set that would prioritize other things over traditional gender roles for women, large families in the domestic sphere. And, and those who are more religious and particularly fundamentalist will, will tend to more value those traditional gender roles, pronatalism, etc. And so that accounts, I think, for this, for the birth rate difference. I don't think talking about house prices in New York and London is, is the answer to what's going on. I'm afraid. I, I just think these materialist explanations don't really hold water when you look at them in detail. Um, and so I don't think there's really a lot of whole lot of combination of, of economic structural changes that are going to make much difference uh, to the birth rate in Western countries. Yeah. I agree with you. And I, I, I basically said that when I had Matty Glacios on this podcast for his book, One Billion Americans, where right. he was somewhat more optimistic about the possibility of public policy increasing the birth rate. That seemed a bit fantastical to me, just, you know, given the, the global ubiquitous quality of the birth rate decline in every singular secu secular society, every single secular society on earth, the, the, the cause can't come down to the particular public policy choices of any particular country. It has, there has to be a more global cause that has to do with just uh, in some way the fact that there's so many more opportunities now in life. Life is more fun. The experience of being a single right. adult in a secular society with economic growth over time, contraception, uh, you know, you, there's just so much more to gain from not having kids now where right. the experience of having a family is kind of roughly the same as it was 50 years ago. But the experience of being a single adult in a secular society with so many options, so many things to do, much more wealth and much more that your money can buy, much more experiences that your money can buy that then get shackled when you have kids. I think the the uh, the gap between the life you get with and without kids has has grown because life has gotten better in in, in a way. Yeah, and, I think that's and, and yeah. absent yeah absent like a, a religious type value on big families, the average self interested person is just going to delay having kids for as long as possible and the more you delay it the less likely it is to happen period right you right know? yeah and i think that also there's a tendency to underestimate how fertility does decline uh amongst women i mean in, in vitro and some of these techniques are not anywhere near as successful as some people think i mean this is the argument of a demographer called vigard skierbeck who who in his recent book um, and yeah, and I think Brad Wilcox and I, we did this uh, this book, I think in 2015, on the causes and consequences of low fertility, where we it was an edited collection. We brought together demographers who discussed this. And yeah, the, the general consensus was a lot of countries are pursuing these policies, you know, baby bonuses and, mm -hmm, and all kinds mm -hmm. of things. And it's not, you know, the, the record is one of failure generally. I mm -hmm. mean, there are some people who would argue that Russia and Hungary, I mean, if you keep changing the you know, put in a new uh, pronatalist incentive every few years, you could maybe get it, the birth rates higher. I, I mean, France is a country that's close to replacement and has been worried about its fertility for 200 years since the mm -hmm. Napoleonic era. And, and maybe if you're that kind of country and you've been at it for 200 years, you might 
maybe that'll be something that, that will push people towards replacement. But, but yeah, I think you're right in general. And the fact this is occurring, you know, in East Asia, mm-hmm. in, in Southern Europe, in, in the Ger- German speaking countries, and now increasingly even in the so the countries like Scandinavia and the Anglo Saxon world that were closest to replacement, like Britain has dropped from something like two children per woman about 10 years ago to 1.55. So in a period of not much more than a decade, they've really dropped. Some of the Scandinavian countries have come down significantly as well. So some of the sort of stars in this uh, have have also dropped. And, And yeah, I think if you look at the data, the difference between a white French woman who is a regular attending Catholic and a white French woman who does not identify as religious is sort of a half child and and across European countries, a quarter to a half child, which if you multiply that over generations could become quite significant if the rate of religious secularization, the rate of people moving away from religion starts to slacken and the boundaries between the Mm. religious and the non-religious start to harden, then we could start to see a sort of different path between those two. So I, I find this argument very compelling at the same time most past straight line predictions just don't end up being true for reasons that are unforeseen by the predictors at the time. If we were sitting here at 2100 <laughs> right. and for some reason, like, let's say like your thesis is wrong, what would be like the most likely oversight? Well, it's a good question. You know, what, what, what could happen? I mean, you could get a sect to church moderating movement occur in the Amish, the ultra-Orthodox, etc., that would lead to declining birth rates. You, you might even get the Israeli state being able to convince the rabbis to go for uh, to, to issue injunctions to have lower birth. I, I think these are, I think they're very hard for me to imagine now because the whole basis of the scholar society and ultra-Orthodoxy would militate against that. Um, but that is a possibility. We've seen this in the past. You know, the Mormons moderating, perhaps converging now, but. I think it's a different thing to talk about a, a closed world-denying sect versus the Mormons, who were always open, always proselytizing. So I guess that's one thing that could happen. Uh, I mean, you know, we don't we live in tolerant liberal societies, this, which is, is actually a perfect environment for the growth of religious demography. You know, if there was a group in China that had very high birth rates and that had anti-system values the Chinese government would would step in and say, you can have two kids and that's it, mm-hmm. uh, which they've kind of already done to some degree with the Uyghurs. But mm-hmm. so in an authoritarian system, um, an authoritarian government could fix the problem very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, in fact, if you look at ultra-orthodoxy, it was non-adaptive when you had Nazis going around hunting Jews. Uh, they were the ones who were least able to to kind of disguise themselves and escape. So in a in an authoritarian mm. environment, it's not an evolutionary strategy, but in a liberal, tolerant environment, it's it's a very good evolutionary strategy. So I guess if the environment becomes more authoritarian, then the the strategy that they're pursuing will not be as successful. Is there any possibility that secular societies form like high birth rate beliefs? It's very difficult for me to see. Or is that just like a contradiction inherently? I mean, it's 
it's not impossible if you get some kind of a millenarian secular ideology that values high birth rates. And I know there are a few writers, and, and their name escapes me now, that they're proposing exactly this, that it's, it's almost like an effective altruist thing, like we've got to have kids. Yeah, I think it's Simone and Malcolm Collins. Yes, They have like right. a pragmatist guide to a new religion, yeah. to building a new religion. They want to create, they care about this problem, and they're like, their solution is we have to get the atheists to have more babies. Right. <laughs> right. But I just but, think... But, but not with a public policy solution with like a yeah. values, with like a secular cult yes. of, of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. And the pro- the only problem is a lot like a lot of these secular religions like uh, Saint-Simon and, and I'm, I'm talking about what Henri de Saint-Simon's secular religion was called in the early 19th century. But a lot of these have fizzled very quickly. Um, Fourier and some of these communes of the 19th mm-hmm. century and the, the secular ones haven't la- There was a study that showed the secular ones didn't last as long. But, but yeah, I mean, maybe you could create a religion, but it's very hard to, to, to create an artificial religion like that. It's might very be hard. hard to create from scratch. I think yeah. part of it's because um, when it has no history to it and no tradition, when you're building the new tradition, it, it's 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 less of a hook for people than yeah. if folks have been doing it for hundreds or thousands of years. Right. But I mean, the other so possi- there's like a yeah. hump it has to get over for it yeah. to be compelling. In, yeah. in some way, just a time hump. I don't know. It's a yeah, weird think, phrase, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. You have to perhaps build up a symbol system and yeah. affections to, to founders and, and heroes and rituals. But I mean, the other possibility is that you might get an equilibrium forming where just enough defection occurs amongst the religious to feed the deficit amongst the secular. And so as long as the secular are, are winning on the switching front, by enough, they don't have to match birth rates, but, mm-hmm. they, but they have to make sure that the flow of personnel coming in from the religious to secular conversion stream is high enough mm-hmm. to maintain the equilibrium and an equilibrium that's in their favor. We see in a case like Israel that that's failed; they've lost it, or they're losing that that battle in Israel. But maybe, maybe in another situation uh, with enough defection. It might be possible to sustain. The last thing I should say is there is, there is sort of work on the genetics of. Um, so there's an argument that says, well, okay, we're going through a population bottleneck, and in a world where we have contraception and you don't have to have kids to have sex, it becomes a choice, becomes value based. There are some people who innately ha- like kids, like large families, mm-hmm. and that's hereditary. Mm-hmm. And once we've once the genes for people who don't have you know, people who don't have that gene to like large families are weeded out of the population over time because of low low birth rates, they don't reproduce. Um, you'll get a secular population of people who are hmm. just genetically wired to like large families, and then you'll get a, a rebound. Uh, and now, that, I mean, that depends on how genetic the desire for larger families is. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the the same person that predicted that <laughs> might predict that we'd have far fewer gay people now than we do, right? Like gay uh, homosexuals have persisted over over time to a remarkable degree, despite the fact that you would think if they mm-hmm. don't leave children that the numbers would go down over time, but actually, actually no. Well, unless you make a group selection argument that. If gay people become priests who can encourage a more cohesive pronatalist or stronger society, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think about how an evolutionary 
you know, biologists or somebody, would, or a cultural evolutionist would argue this, would say, well, if, if they can fulfill a role in a society that right. enhances this fitness of the society, then in fact they could be enhancing the evolutionary success of a society. That's um, pretty, so, yeah, 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 that's, I know, that's so. pretty, um, <laughs> five head, as they yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so one thing I've noticed, uh, I don't know if I noticed it for the first time, but I noticed it most prominently this past year was that during Pride Month, which is June, right? Yeah. Um, This past Pride, there were multiple instances of Muslim immigrant groups in America protesting the various symbols and manifestations of Pride. Uh, I forget which town it was. It may, it may have been in, uh, in in either Mich- Michigan or Minnesota. Yeah, Hamtramck in, in yeah, Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, thank you. That was there. Ha- yeah. Hamtramck, yeah. They, I believe they protested the placement of a pride flag on a municipal building or something, some such. Right. It seems to me there's a, a, there's, there's been a clear theoretical but now empirically emerging contradiction between uh, two values on the left, which are lots of immigration uh, and immigration made as easy as possible and pro-LGBT uh, or right. LGBTQ because, you know, I, I think the, tell me if I'm wrong here, the the median immigrant, the median migrant probably makes the country less friendly to LGBTQ rights on the margin. So is yeah. this? Do you see this as a, as a long run contradiction in current uh, American, you know, progressive values? Oh, oh absolutely, and, and it's it's so interesting. You raise that again. I mentioned that million person march in Canada yesterday. Uh, the the person who founded that march is a Muslim Canadian, Kamal Sheikh, who's the leader of this, uh, one of the leaders. Um, and a lot of you know a lot of Canadian Muslims are showing up at these. We're showing up these protests, um, you know, alongside Christians, alongside conservative uh, and, and, and others. So, yeah, that's that is a sort of reconfiguration, a sort of tension. And the the sort of minority vote is, you know, the immigrant minority vote is a is a, is a key swing constituency in Canada because they live in the suburban belt around Toronto where more people switch their vote election to election. Um this could be something that gives the conservatives a very important advantage uh, in Canada. They're, they're, conservatives are leading now in the polls by quite a margin. Um, in Britain, we're, we're seeing similar protests by uh, Muslim parents at, at schools uh, over gender ideology. Uh, and, and yeah, I think this is, this is a really interesting tension mm-hmm. uh, in that multicultural coalition. Now, have we seen it before? Well, yes, we have. Proposition 8 in California, the, the gay, anti-gay marriage uh, you know, proposition, which was carried with the support of evangelical Christians, uh, Latino Catholics, Muslims, and others, showed the power of that coalition mm-hmm. on, the, on the conservative side. Now, ultimately, gay marriage is no longer a controversial issue uh, here, but... Of course, the gender ideology stuff is and is more likely to remain controversial because it's not so much a civil rights issue, but it's really pitting 
the rights of two two groups of people against each other, um, or or it's pitting competing rights, pitting competing rights claims against each other. Mm-hmm. So it's unlikely to simply resolve in the same way the the gay marriage uh, thing resolved. So yeah, I mean, if this becomes a major and rising, increasingly salient political issue. Um, it could greatly affect, you know, it could have a big impact on the coalitions that, that unite behind the, the left and the right. So, yeah, I, I think that's a good indication of where you have a contradiction within the progressive movement. I mean, of course, you also have this contradiction between feminism and uh, LGBT, right, over uh, women's spaces. So, so there are certainly a significant, there's a significant feminist general critical feminist opposition to um, trans women entering into women's spaces, women's shelters, women's sports, etc. So there are all these, yeah, there are, this is just another one of those tensions when you've got a, when the only thing that's uniting you is that you're opposed to something, Mm -hmm. but the differences within your, your views come to light. Right. Okay, so I had Garrett Jones on this podcast a little while back, the economist uh, from George Mason University, who's written about immigration and, and cultural change over time. And he has this argument that basically, you know, assimilation is something of a myth. Because if you look at the different second and third and even fourth, et cetera, generations of, of, of Americans, even even just looking at white Americans and which... European countries their ancestors came from, you find um, a correlation in certain um, certain traits like savings, uh, savings rates and level of trust. Uh, you'll find like Italian-Americans correlated with modern-day Italians, um, Ger- German-Americans correlated mm-hmm. with uh, modern-day Germans, and so on and so forth. Um, I didn't really draw the lesson from his data that he did because there were other aspects like views towards women and and um, and religion where there was no correlation, uh, even on his own account. So to me, it felt more like a mixed story rather than assimilation doesn't work. Um, what is your your uh, your your perception of that question? Is he is he right there? And uh, what are the implications of that for immigration and cultural change? I guess on balance, I I am more of a believer that assimilation uh, is a powerful process. I mean, I think the other thing, of course, and I'm not sure. I have to kind of read his book, which I haven't got around to doing. And I want to do. Um, obviously, intermarriage is so pervasive now in Western society, certainly within the white supra-ethnic group. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very hard to find somebody who is mm-hmm. entirely, you know, Irish, entirely Italian uh, mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and so I wonder what the theory is for someone who's like a quarter Italian, quarter Irish, quarter German, which, I mean, that's much more the norm rather than being entirely one or entirely the other. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess I would be somewhat skeptical. Now, I, what I would say is there's no question that there is some influence from the values of your parents, their outlooks, going down into the next generation and the next generation. But I guess my general view is that ultimately assimilation uh, overrides the legacy of these these outlooks and traits. And you can kind of see, you know, most groups in the world uh, have absorbed others. You know, the, the, the Greeks 
have absorbed large numbers of Slavs over time in Greece. Um, Sicily is an island that has had Arabs and Normans and, and all kinds of people washing through there. And ultimately, uh, you know, the Hungarians are, have, were a melting pot at one time, uh, have solidified into something else. So I'm not... Uh, I mean, now the question is the time scale, right? I mean, maybe within the time scale of one or two generations, you can get a persistence of some of these outlooks. I guess I would be skeptical whether it would survive more than, say, three, four generations, especially when you get intermarriage and melting. I'm just not mm -hmm. sure that that's, that's likely. Now, it's, the other thing I should say, by the way, is it is true that there are different political cultures in America. And if immigrants are coming or Italians move to New York, which had a less... Um, moralistic political culture, let's say, than uh, rural New England. You know, mm -hmm. Rural New England had that more moralistic Yankee culture. Mm -hmm. New York had a much more commercial, less, more corrupt politics that goes back, way back to Tammany Hall and so on. And if mm -hmm. immigrants come into that culture, they'll be socialized into that culture, which is maybe more similar to Southern Italy and that kind of uh, culture than it would be to Yankee New England. Mm. Uh, what's the fate of evangelical Christianity in America, in your view, given demographic birth rates and, and um, long-run cultural change? Because it seems like you, you, your thesis is sort of that like the, the world-denying, the deep world-denying sects are the ones that are going to multiply, but not necessarily the, the more, let's say, down-to-earth religious. Right. And, and so... That's right. So the evangelical Protestants, their birth rates have – they're not fully converged to the liberal sex. So there's still a gap. I think probably a gap of maybe 0 0.2, 0 0.3 between the regular church-going Christian evangelical, the regular church-going um, Episcopalian. It's not a large gap. The gap is mainly between church – regular church attenders and non-attenders. Um, now, some of the radical independent – um, Neo-Calvinist sects will have a sort of birth rate pushing three, but for the most part, they're they're now below replacement. Although one thing, of course, is that they have higher retention, they have high, somewhat higher birth rates, and so evangelical Christianity is doing a hell of a lot better than mainline liberal Christianity. I mean, the mainline liberal Christianity is just hemorrhaging; uh, is, is not disappearing. It's more or less almost disappearing, whereas. Christianity is becoming increasingly evangelical, um, and so they're they're doing better than the others. But are they where the Amish and the Mormons are? No, I mean, I'm sorry, the Amish and the ultra orthodox are. No, they're not. I mean, it's not as successful because they're open to conversion. They're open to to loss as well. Now, what's of course interested in the in, in the U.S. case is you have the political valence, the fact that denomination, as Robert Putnam and Putnam and Campbell wrote, you know, people switch denominations for political reasons now. Uh, there are differences within the evangelical bin between the kind of more moderate and the more conservative, um, the, the more traditional evangelicals. Other, so there's a whole different sub-genre within the, the evangelicals. And, and the more strict, the more conservative I would say probably the better the future in terms of numbers. Um, the more liberal and uh, mainstream, the weaker the future. It's the same in Judaism. The liberal, the more mm -hmm. the reform, the conservative, they are you know, losing in numbers and influence at a rapid rate mm -hmm. compared to the orthodox, ultra-orthodox. Mm -hmm. So it's the same pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what Jim Guth calls the religious restructuring paradigm where it's the middle's hollowed out and you're either going to secularism or you're going to a strict 
a stricter religiosity. That's kind of how I predict things to continue. Um, so I'd say probably for strict religion and, and strict evangelicalism, it probably has a good future and will continue to be important. Okay, so treating wokeness as a religion, um, would you expect it to be, I mean, I'd expect it to be a very low birth rate religion because of, you know, the, the deep influence of feminism and, you know, like every woman is sort of expected to be like a, a lesbian right. girl boss. Right. And that's right. like what's cool. And yeah. motherhood is not particularly maybe not openly denigrated, but by implication, um, less cool than, than the alternatives. And, you know, there, there was just a, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you may have seen this, uh, I think fire, uh, the foundation for individual rights in education, or actually expression. They, I think they changed their name. Um, they did a poll of, of American college students and found that, uh, something like only like 55% of, secular college students identify as straight, which would put some like 45% of, of, you know, American secular college attending students under a certain age um, as either gay or LGBTQ or um, amorphously queer or pansexual, so forth. I mean, this sets up is of a piece with a general, generally like kind of a low probably what is going to be a low birth rate cohort in all likelihood. Right. Does that mean the, the, those of us that worry about wokeness, does that, does that mean we have less to worry about in the long run? Just by demographics alone, this is going to peter out. Um, that's a, that's an interesting question. I, I, I guess I would say that the, their hold on the power structure in terms of, uh, university administrators, HR departments, communications departments, uh, is such that they would still manage to recruit, selectively recruit their own and people of like mind, uh, and therefore at least perpetuate themselves within the meaning-making institutions of society. So the question then becomes, again, that question as with shall the religious inherit the earth, um, the demographics are going against them. So how are they going to make up for that through switching? Are they, if they control schools and universities and media and um, organizational cultures, are they going to be able to entice the children of religious people mm -hmm. uh, or, or of unwoke people to become woke, to mm -hmm. buy into this ideology? Now, the, the fire surveys are quite interesting. If you look at... There's a question on there about whether you have the same politics as your parents. Mm -hmm. And one thing you see is that conservative students are more likely to have the same politics as their parents compared to uh, liberal students. So, so there seems to be a flow of people who had conservative parents who become, who move left. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the woke side, in a way, is benefiting from switching. Mm -hmm. It's a bit the way the secular side benefits from switching the pattern. The trend is from religious to secular. Mm -hmm. The trend is also from uh, conservative to to liberal. The question is how strong that flow is. One of the things that we might think about, of course, is if there is a growing segregation and endogamy by partisanship and mm -hmm. by religion. So, so part of what's happening on these surveys is people are checking the Christian box 
it's, it tends to be Christ, uh, conservative-minded students are much more likely to say they're Christian, even if they're not regular attenders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, whereas maybe the same person will tick the non-religious box if they are a, a leftist woke. Um, and so, but but over time, if people who identify as Christian, um, if those people start to marry other people who identify as Christian and who happen, and that overlaps with being Republican. You know, Republicans are only about a fifth or a quarter of the student body. If they're finding each other, and also if people who aren't Republican aren't willing to date them, which, you know, if you look at the, the survey data, and one of the earlier fire surveys showed only, uh, only 7% of non-Republican voting female students were willing to date a Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if these patterns of kind of dating discrimination of, of endogamy bed down and we get partisan endogamy and the dating sites might reinforce that you could you could foresee a situation that becomes a bit more israel-like where you get this high higher fertility relatively high retaining kind of christian conservative population uh expanding and retaining and then you're into a different dynamic you're into a more israel-like dynamic which would lead to the woke losing out however if if you don't have that degree of of boundary maintenance and you have enough flow from conservative to liberal so the children of conservatives becoming liberal and woke then that won't come to pass so it's all in the flows really okay so this might be a bit of a strange question um and if you you don't have an answer that's fine (laughs) uh but so like you you have this set of predictions around birth rates because you studied birth rates most people don't don't know about this right Right. so let's say you had a bunch of money to invest and 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 you wanted (laughs) to invest it in such a way that it it will grow because of your knowledge that perhaps the religious will inherit the earth and you have like a 50 to 100 year time horizon where would you put that money god that's to sort of beat the market because the market doesn't know about this yet Right. Um, <laughs> well, I guess you would invest in, in you know, uh, Christian brands. And I mean, assuming it's a or religious, if it's Christian or it's Jewish or Muslim. But, yeah, ideally, you may probably invest in religiously branded companies and universities and schools. And, you know, if that's going to be the larger part of your population, then that'll be the growth um, and if you have a brand that's going to appeal to these people in a way that they have nothing that's catering to them now, because you could sort of say that the market right now caters heavily to the secular liberal mm-hmm. uh, consumer and mm-hmm. the young person. Um, but if you explicitly target uh, this kind of conservative Christian market, which mm-hmm. maybe isn't being catered for, I and mean, the laws of supply and demand would say the price should be high and sales should be should be buoyant. But so that would be down the road. Something like you know? what Daily Wire is trying to sort of make right wing movies in a way, right? They're trying to make, um, you know, because because Hollywood is very skewed liberal relative probably to the market for movies in general. Um, I mean, you can't imagine Hollywood making like a right wing Barbie. No, <laughs> for example, <laughs> right? Um, so maybe maybe Daily Wire's thesis around entertainment is like a long bet that may really pay pay off. Well, yeah. I mean, imagine if yeah, if you were in Israel and you could target the ultra orthodox. I mean, that's a pretty good bet that that's yeah. going to be a growing market. If you get their loyalty, then you know, yeah. I mean, you're going to 
you can ride that. Um, right. And so if that crystallizes here, um, you know, one thing we, we started to see some uh, conservative market power, you know, with the Bud Light, you know, there are a few instances where we started to see that market power emerge. I mean, Richard Hanania has this argument that liberals care more, liberal, which is a sort of U.S. version of the term for cultural left, but that they care more. Uh, and so, you know, they will boycott, they will, you know, not buy from or, or they will buy from Ben and Jerry's if they get if they get the virtue signaling. Uh, you know, if you start to see that happening. Is that true? I think it is to, true to some extent. So mm-hmm. it is no question that the case that in opinion surveys, people who identify as progressive activists, cultural left, uh, that group are more likely to attend protests, to participate in politics, to uh, g- donate. You know, So if you look at donations data, you just have to look at donations data, say, by, for, for parties, and you can see this massive skew in favor of the Democrats when it comes to political donations. So like 90, I think it's 98% of um, donations for Harvard staff went to the Democrats. Um, and that's, that's typical year after year. Doesn't necessarily mean 98% of Democrats are, or 98% of Harvard staff are Democrats, but it means that the politically committed group is almost entirely Democrat. So yes, mm-hmm. they do have an advantage, but it could be the case that conservatives may be able to mobilize and, and may be able to actually bring more people into politics, perhaps raise consciousness uh, to somewhat even that up a little bit. Right now, I think it's certainly the – so it used to be the case that um, there were strong civic associations on the right, particularly working class ones, um, the American Legion, uh, you know, Daughters of the American Revolution, mm-hmm. um, Grand Army of the Republic, these kind of very large chapter-based fraternities, and they would channel – they would almost politicize the membership to some extent and bring in all of these people who are now probably apolitical, but bring them into politics, get them onto, on the street. Northern Ireland is an example of that. The Orange Order, which I've studied as a, as a movement, Protestant fraternity, you know, they can bring tens of thousands of people on the street uh, as a conservative movement. Now, what there aren't that many grassroots conservative movements that can do that. To some degree, the religious right can do that, but outside of the religious right, say the anti-woke right, can it put easily, can it get tens, hundreds of thousands of people on the street in a city in a protest? Probably not. Um, and so that is a difference, whereas the left can. Mm-hmm. You know, the BLM, we saw that. Um, so the mobilizing capacity is just greater. But over time, maybe that could change. Maybe social media might play a role in that. Okay, so um, you quote Scott Atran in the book saying, quote, no human society has survived without religion for more than two generations. Is that really true? And, and what, like, in, uh, define the terms kind of used there. I, 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 don't, I don't fully agree with that mm-hmm. because – and it depends how you define secularization and religion. You know, some would say secularism is just separation of – politics from a separation of church and state that that's what secularism is about it's, others would say like steve bruce no it's about private belief and, and private religiosity and so you get societies where that have low private belief attendance religiosity now i'd say northern europe and france have been in that situation now for more than two generations mm-hmm. and i don't know i mean they're going to survive mm-hmm. now you could say Maybe the birth rates will be lower. Maybe there's going to be more out-of-wedlock births. Maybe there'll be more 
certain kinds of social problems and maybe a certain drag on economic productivity, perhaps. But then a highly religious society has other problems around intolerance, around maybe not being as open to change, which mm -hmm. could drag the economy down. So it's not obvious to me that this, this two generations thesis works. And yeah, so I'm not I'm not totally sold on that, that mm -hmm. argument. Mm -hmm. um, Are artificial wombs going to rescue secular people because you know if you if you if we get those in the next hundred years you get a situation where today you're, you're you know you're a 20 year old liberal you get pregnant accidentally you get an abortion 50 or 100 years you get pregnant accidentally maybe there's perfect artificial wombs you um essentially the womb carries the child and it gets somehow put up for adoption into another secular liberal family or something, does that come to the rescue or is that just uh, like, you know, sci-fi, I don't know, irrelevance? Well, I think it'll make some difference if the technology is there to allow you to preserve eggs, you know, even some in vitro, if, all, if that all gets better. Yeah, I think that will definitely help the secular population more than the religious population. And Although to that, now I'm thinking if, if the religious are the ones adopting all the kids – Right, and it's a moot point. Right? Yeah, and I, I'm not on top of the numbers on that to, yeah. to know, um, but I don't think it's going to be the silver bullet. I think it might make some difference at the edge edges, uh, but ultimately, I don't think that's going to alter the general thrust. Okay, so do you think countries like America and France? will fare better in in the new more religious world because of the strong separation of church and state um as opposed to countries that have less of that tradition in in their politics that's yeah that's an interesting question you know one there there was an argument that said if you have a separation of church and state you, that that having a state religion you know, Greek Orthodoxy, Anglicanism in, in, in England is a bit like having a state-run economy mm -hmm. and that it stunts uh, its innovation and creativity. And so you don't get the religion catering to different categories of human demand, whereas in the United States, because there was a separation, uh, you got more religious innovation, tent revivals or mega churches or whatever. Um, and I think there may be something to that, but... A lot of the studies that have looked at the degree of separation, the degree of religious diversity and the health of religion don't seem to show much of an effect because the counter argument is when you have a diversity of religions, uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to competition and greater religiosity. It could mean that people look around and say, oh, uh, my religion isn't the only one mm -hmm. true faith, one true God, if they're believing other things and that toleration can also lead to the erosion of religion. That was Steve Bruce's kind of hypothesis against the religious market school, which were the opposite of, of the secularization theorists. They each have an argument. I don't think the data is clear cut uh, in favor of the religious markets argument, actually. I think it's sort of a bit of a draw right now. So I don't necessarily think that's going to you know, save the U.S. or make the U.S. a more religiously vibrant uh, society. Now, I mean, it does seem one thing I would say is it looks like that big, sharp religious decline amongst young people that you, we've we've had in the U.S. the last twenty years or something. I mean, it does seem there are some signs of stabilization in in the Zoomers, uh, you know, and so maybe 
that big drop has is stabilizing and coming out at a level that is still much higher than in Europe. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to wait and see whether there is continued religious decline as we go past Gen Z. I don't know who who exactly put it this way. I, I heard someone say this recently, so it's, it's not. I'm, I just want to flag that so no one accuses me of stealing something. But <laughs> someone um, someone said something like, "When we look back at this moment in history, we may end up saying that secular liber- liberalism was brief and beautiful." You know, in the sense right. that it was, it's, it was, it's fantastic to live in a society. As I grew up, I did not grow up with any religion to speak of, with any, um, really, with any irrational, otherworldly values. I was uh, encouraged to pursue, in like a, I, I suppose, common sense, ethical way, the things that I wanted to do, and. Um, and there's a lot to that, you know. Had I been gay, I would have been accepted by my community, which which is a great boon. Had I been, you know, um, had I had some other non-standard preferences or identities in some way, I, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for secular liberal tolerance. Um, and but if it if it's unable to sustain itself in the, in the very long run. Uh, does that, I mean, should, should we rate secular liberalism l- lower if, it, if it's not self-sustaining? Yeah, I, 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 really interesting because, you, you know, there's the empirical what is likely to happen and then the, the normative, you know, what does the good society look like? Like right. you, I was raised in a secular environment and basically a secular individual um, didn't have any of this uh, – any religious upbringing, um, and and I agree, there's a certain you know you can be rational, you can be free. You don't have to you know. Now, of course, there are many different stripes of religion, and some are are, are some are saying that the world's four thousand years old, but obviously a lot have have made their peace with science, and so I think there's less of a less friction there. But but yeah, I think look, I mean, I think there will always be secular uh, liberal people. Uh, the question is whether a, a secular liberal society is sustainable um and that yes it could be a moment particularly the secular left liberal combination i think is is i guess i would see that as quite tricky to maintain now if they have total control of the mechanism uh, mechanisms of socialization they don't have too many highly resistant Sects like the Amish and the ultra orthodox, and and that's probably the case in ma- many continental European countries, with the exception of maybe the Netherlands, to some degree Finland, and to some degree Britain. But outside of that, if you don't have these very sort of world denying sects, you can probably keep it going for quite a while, mm-hmm. quite a while longer. Um, but yeah, I would say it it may be a temporary phase. Now, I, I would say if we take sort of a secular, a less liberal form of secularism, like in China, for example, right? So if we take a, a kind of a system that is secular but not liberal, I would say that system would be definitely more durable mm-hmm. because if there is a challenge uh, from a, a religious group, the state will act it's on it in, in an authoritarian way. And actually, even in U.S. history, I mean, you've had the American federal government uh, essentially marched into Utah and said, you're not having polygamy. Um, 
end of story. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there have been periods in the past where uh, the U.S. has sort of drawn and a line. And the reason they got to Utah in the first place was persecution, right? I mean, they, didn't they, right. used to, they used to be in Missouri and yeah. the governor of Missouri in the 1800s issued an executive order to kill Mormons on site. Right. And, and they fled. And yeah, and, um, yeah so their, their history has involved a lot of that now. Right. So, yeah. so an illiberal secularism probably is robust to that challenge. But can a liberal secularism really deal? So what's Israel? What, is, what are secular liberal Israelis going to do as the ultra-Orthodox become the majority? Mm-hmm. Um, now, they could say, let's see if we can encourage them to migrate and leave by giving Unlikely. them incentives. But then someone has to accept them. Uh, maybe some South American country, or I don't know. But I think it's, it's very unlikely, unlikely. You know, like yeah. the, the one Jewish state as its identity right. tries to get rid of one sect of, of Jews. Right, and so it yeah. kind of there's a kind so of how, how do they accept becoming kind of a minority? Right, and so it, there's a contradiction between liberal uh, within liberalism. It's the sort of tolerance paradox, toleration paradox, which I think mm-hmm. goes back to the ancient Aristotle or somebody made this point. But yeah, mm-hmm. if if your ethos is toleration, you know, how do you tolerate the intolerant? Mm-hmm. Is there a case for not tolerating the intolerant because it threatens your liberal order? And maybe Israel gets to that point. I mean, it's very interesting to see the battles now in the Supreme, over the Supreme Court in Israel, which I think are underpinned to some degree by these demographic shifts to the right, you know, to the, to the conservative religious side. Uh, but there has been a certain degree, I think, of almost denial or unwillingness to face the reality there you you often meet secular israelis who say oh they will you know they're losing all kinds of kids won't won't remain uh, ultra orthodox and yet uh, the data is just not there to, to sustain that but at some point it's going to become more and more manifest and more and more real and apparent so i guess we'll have to watch what what israel does now israel has that secular nationalism you know the Secular nationalism is to, can be perhaps an alternative belief system. Uh, mm-hmm. Will that? But then I suppose it, that would have to lead in an authoritarian direction if they're going to actually be able to arrest the growth of of ultra orthodox. I mean, it's the only possible way, unless they're able to convince the rabbis uh, to to bring the birth rate down because it's a threat to social peace. Maybe they can do that, um, but we'll have to watch that space. Um. Are religious people happier? Uh, yes, they are. I mean, I think the, the data is pretty clear on that. Um, now, there's an argument about is this because um, they have community, you know, they have, uh, reg- you know, some would say that this is due to regular attendance, participating in community and charity, and, and, and you're drawn into a wider community, so you have more face to face contact that that's really the effect. So you could, in theory, get that in some kind of a secular uh, organization, but it's just hard to know what that would be Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, that could replicate that communitarian function. But yes, I think that the data is there that the the religious are more happy. So in a way, I once asked Stephen Pinker this, you know, um, you could say religion is irrational, but if it's leading to greater happiness, is it not rational, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if they're the ones who are achieving uh, what seems to be the a rational aim of a utility maximizer, then perhaps that it, belief in, in religion is a more rational way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tricky question because obviously religious belief involves, uh, involves certain irrational 
beliefs which go, which go against scientific rationality, mm-hmm. at least in uh, certain strands of religion. Yeah, it's you know I, I I'm pretty open to the idea that religious people are happier. Um, somehow that that goes down smooth with me, even as an as an atheist and a secular person. Only problem is I I can't choose to believe something because it right. would make me happier to believe. <laughs> right. I, I literally can't do it. Yeah. Um, if I could, yeah. I might. I mean, look, if you told I mean, me I could believe X and it would it would probably make me happier, I think I would do it. I think I'd be an idiot not to do it. I mean, I, I make all other kinds of interventions to to be happier, like right. exercise, daily exercise, and you know, I I do all, all kinds of things in life precisely to become happier at great cost sometime. Um, the problem is I just can't, I can't actually believe something. I, 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 it's, I think it's too late for me to believe <laughs> in any holy book or any God unless I, you know, I, Jesus Christ literally walks up to me and says, hey, like, right. I, I can't do it on faith. Yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, I think that's absolutely right. Um, the other thing, of course, is, you know, most of... A person's happiness is not due to religiosity. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, in a way, it may make some difference to your happiness. It may make some difference to your lifespan, maybe. But uh, you know, maybe for you as an individual, it's not going to make much difference. I mean, there are, of course, other things correlated with happiness. I mean, one of the strongest, of course, is also conservatism. I mean, conservatives are a lot happier than yeah. people on the left. I mean, does that mean so that... So what is that about? I mean, that, that's that's right. that's extremely well established. There's a there's yeah. a great article by um, by my friend Musa Al-Garbi really just like laying out the evidence. Uh, it, it, and it, it, it just seems to be a well-established fact right now in America that conservatives are happy, happier and young liberals are are the least happy, the the most mentally ill. Um, right. What is that about? Is that is that a, a knock on effect of the religion, or is, does that have a separate dimension of its own? I think it's quite separate. I think the religiosity question is quite separate from the woke question. And this is where I, I mean we we can talk about that in in a minute. I, I'm not sure the one is a substitute for the other. But what what I think is going on partly is with conservatives. And the conservative mindset is that conservatism is associated with this idea of thicker boundaries to the self, um, whereas being on the left, is it's, it's more thin-bounded where you have less of a sort of stable sense of self and there's more variability like do I choose this gender or that gender? Mm. Um, do I choose this this way to be or that way to be? You know, sexual, sexuality. Um, more of those questions which generates a certain amount of anime and a certain amount of uncertainty and a certain amount of... So I just think it's it's a less stable sense of self, mm. uh, less integrated perhaps into community life. Um, you can actually find this relationship going back, though, in the data and the general social survey. Um, so it's not a new going finding. Yeah. Um, and mm. so it's not a necessarily a new finding, although I think because of the rise in mental illness... Uh, amongst young people, the gaps now are looking bigger, right? So and it's not it's, um, wokeness per se. It's something m- more fundamental about what you what you would probably call the cultural left. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and so here's another. Obviously, LGBT uh, people. I mean, if you look at U.S. data on teens, the CDC data I, I saw showed that about three quarters of LGBT teens. Um, 
I think I don't know if the question basically they had a mental health issue, Mm -hmm. whether it was anxiety or depression or feeling persistently hopeless. The the number, the equivalent number was sort of 55 for women compared to 75 for LGBT, 45 for men. And then I think, you know, black men were a bit lower, like 35. So you have this kind of range. So there's definitely this big gap. LGBT are less happy. But even within the LGBT, the gays and lesbians who are uh, leading a gay and lesbian, have a gay and lesbian sexual life. They're happier. Are happier. That strikes me as very true. Because, I mean, if, yeah. I, if I just think of the, the gay men I know personally, they yeah. all seem very happy. Right. Like, the, 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 when I picture the the picture of mental illness of people I've met over my life have tended to be the queer and questioning, more likely to be women, rather than someone who's just like, yep, I'm a gay man. That It's a very simple identity. It's a very defined identity. I know exactly who I am. And, and right. that may, may be something about the solidity of an identity rather than lumping all LGBTQ together as, as the unhappiness. It's like the, the, the ones that are fluid and constantly questioning, is that what leads to the unhappiness? Yeah, exactly right. Mm. So if for political reasons, for trendy reasons, they're kind of pushing against their heterosexuality, you know? And so the General Social Survey asked people about the number of sexual partners in the past five years, and it's been doing that for decades, Mm -hmm. and whether they're male or female or something else. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things we're seeing is that if you take female bisexuals, uh, it used to be the case that most of them, their sexual partners would have been women. Now, female bisexuals, 60% of their partners, they've only had male heterosexual partners. So mm-hmm. what you're getting is essentially people who are not in practice uh, yeah. LGBT, but they're identifying as LGBT. They're the ones who have the highest levels of, of mental illness. And so, and, and I think what that speaks to is this kind of indeterminacy, this lack of solidity, the lack of boundedness. Uh, I think that's, if I were to say, I think that's probably what's behind this. So which way does the causation go, though? Because I can also picture being mentally ill people, people that are depressed because of their depression, they go searching for an identity. They say something must be wrong. I must be, uh, maybe I'm, I need to be something else. And maybe that's why I'm sad. So they go searching for an identity in, in the, and the ones on offer are queer, pansexual, and maybe happiness lies there. And then you get the correlation, but it, it goes in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I so I think that that could there, there's an element of that. We have to account, of course, for the rise mm-hmm. in youth mental illness, youth LGBT identification. They both increased over time. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some data. There's this high school study in Wisconsin, I think, that seems to show that LGBT have become more unhappy over time. They weren't as unhappy. They become more unhappy over time now. Yeah, I guess that's still potentially potentially explicable uh, on, in a selection model of, of unhappy people selecting into LGBT. But then, why is the why are the total number of unhappy people going up? Um, whereas, I mean, I think you can tell a story about um, 
you know, we do see that. So, for example, there's also a relationship to ideology. Um, the big rise in LGBT identification has occurred almost entirely within the group that identify as very liberal on a five-point scale, from very liberal to very conservative. So it's happening within this kind of leftmost block. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that have gone really for LGBT mm -hmm. uh, identification. I mean, it is possible that unhappy people select into being left-wing and into being LGBT. I'm not... I can't disprove that without longitudinal, longitudinal data, which we just don't have. But uh, I suppose my inclination would be to say that given the, the pattern, the timing of the increase, um, that, that it looks more like on the left there's a certain, not pressure, but a certain drift of the culture that will push people in the direction of unconventional behaviors, unconventional sexualities, and that that's in some ways connected with lack of happiness, which I, su I suppose I interpreted as a kind of enemy coming out of indeterminacy, lack of boundedness, um, and that that is what's behind this. There was a book actually by uh, Boston University sociologist Leah Greenfeld who, who says that when uh, England and France, when they had their kind of revolution, French Revolution, for example, and people no longer had their occupations and their status given to them from their parents and you had a more of a, a democratic national society, less of a sort of dynastic, aristocratic society, there was a lot more confusion around roles. You, know, you didn't know what your position was in life. It was much more up for grabs. And in that environment, you got an increase an increase in madness, what they call madness. Um, so her thesis well, we, is that whenever you get... call anxiety today. Yeah, I when mean, there's yeah. less solidity in, in social roles and mm -hmm. identities and, and it's much more of a choice and it's much more indeterminate, then this lack of boundedness leads to a, a greater increase in mental illness. So that was her, her argument. And I, so I think you could make that argument today. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think, I think there's something to that. Um, you know, I, I, I question, uh, I mean, I, to, to some extent, it, it's always easy to critique your reality because you haven't lived the alternatives. I've never lived in a strict role, uh, a, a, a world with strict roles handed down. That had that had its own, um, I assume, downsides, which is that people sometimes strongly felt they didn't fit into their role and needed to, you know, be let out of a prison, right? Right. When you go to the opposite extreme where, you know, anyone could be anything and there's no set of rules and your your life becomes a create-your-own-adventure kind of book, um, some people are far more suited to that than others. I think many people might find that they don't know how to create their own adventure. They don't really know how to um, self-invent because right. it's actually a very difficult thing to do. And... And some people might be better served with kind of a, a playbook, so to speak, for, for who to be and how to be. Um, but so let's, you know, obviously one lesson you might draw from this is to get happier, I should become a religious conservative, <laughs> right? <laughs> I've given the reason why I can't become religious, right? And I think there's a big mental barrier to people becoming conservative. So, and in a way it, it seems like we both agree the, 
the happiness premium from being both religious and conservative as opposed to secular and liberal, it's not about those labels. It's about something deeper correlated with them, right? right? So pulling out those dimensions, an important lesson for happiness, I think two important lessons for happiness might be aggressively create and sustain a community, right? Like prioritize face-to-face interactions with a set of people, your friends, your family, and don't let that take a backseat in life. And then also define yourself solidly, solidly, you know, know who you are and really be that person, right? Don't try to avoid constant searching for some marginally truer self, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that having a certain degree of solidity, a certain degree of connectedness with the world is probably the key to this. Mm-hmm. So, But I also think that certain people like yourself, others, are, are probably going to be able to manage this better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be that young people, working class people, might not be able to manage the degree of indeterminacy indeterminacy as well. Like if we don't have religion, we don't have a certain family norm anymore, or we don't have certain sexuality norm. I mean, maybe that hits certain kinds of populations like younger people or uh, people who are working class. Maybe they need more structure perhaps Mm -hmm. or, or a more degree to which identities are given, scripts of life are given. Whereas maybe other people... Don't need that, and maybe they are able to select. And and so you see, for example, you know, the upper middle class uh, is does seem to be able to handle sexual freedom that we have, the the different divorce, uh, the alternative family arrangements. They still seem to have intact families. They don't have high rates of divorce. They don't have the kind of social problems that. Mm Uh, people who come, who, you know, working class people have. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the sort of Charles Murray kind of argument. Um, mm-hmm. And similarly, maybe older people can handle the freedom better than adolescents. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may also be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question, yeah, we probably have to strike a balance between you know, having a certain amount of freedom, but then maybe having certain role expectations at a certain point in life. Um, and, and maybe that's the balance we need we need to strike. <laughs> but I agree with you. You can't just go believing in things you don't believe in. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you find them unconvincing, and, and yeah. I, I'd probably agree with you there, then, then there's just no way you can force yourself into it. Um, but, I mean, it's also a bit like, you know, uh, divorce or, or men have a problem being single. Their happiness really tanks when they when they come out of a marriage, or they you know. Whereas women's happiness doesn't doesn't as much. So women are able to handle being single, and and presumably their place doesn't look like a pigsty, and they're having pizza every night. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> yeah, they're, you know, men are probably more vulnerable, uh, less able to handle that that freedom of singlehood, perhaps. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think there's probably just certain populations that are are less able to to adapt to that level of freedom okay so eric kaufman this has been great i think um you have a book coming out in may or march when is it coming it's in may okay so um i'll have you back on to discuss that but i guess you can tease it slightly what's that going to be about well, yeah, so it's about everyone's favorite topic, which is kind of the origin and politics of, of woke. Um, so is it, was there some kind of agreement that 
every book about the origin of wokeness was going to come out between like last month I and know. six months from now. Yeah, I know. Yasha I... Monk, Richard Hanania, Christopher Rufo. My book is not really about the origins of wokeness per okay. se, but it's 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 it touches on it. So oh. this is great. I mean, I don't know who or what well, what it, cabal in the publishing industry decided that it. it well, <laughs> it's a positive or a negative, right? So I I just did a review of Rufo and Hanania in, yes. in Law and Liberty, and I'm now reviewing the new um, Lukianov and Schlott book yeah. a, a, alongside Yasha's book. Great. Um, but but I th- I would say you know so it, it could be that you get the joint reviews or it just too crowded a market. I mean, yeah, this will be it'll be called Taboo: uh, How Making Race Sacred Led to a Cultural Revolution. So it's I, right. I'm kind of focusing much more not so much on the kind of you know, neo-Marxist intellectuals the way Rufo did mm-hmm. um, or the legal civil rights institutions the way Hanania did. I'm much more looking at mainstream left liberal culture people who are not about revolution mm-hmm. but they are about compassion and guilt mm. and 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 i think that's a more important it's a much more numeric a larger group numerically because mm. it's not you know yes we can see the continuities between the black panthers and blm or the weathermen and antifa we can see those continuities in their intellectual program and mm-hmm. even personnel to some degree but explaining the resonance you know, why did so many people march with BLM? Why did all these universities fall over themselves to hire these former weathermen and the former Panthers? Uh, you know, explaining the, the, the pickup mm-hmm. of these very radical ideas within the kind of non-revolutionary uh, liberal left is, I think, very important. And so mm-hmm. I'm kind of looking a lot at the sort of moral order and how it's shaken up by the what Shelby Steele pointed to, which was the rise of the racist, anti-race taboo in, or anti-racism taboo in the mid-60s, and then how that gets stretched and weaponized in different ways. So mm. that'll be the core of the book. And then I also you know, have a policy section as well. All right. Well, I'll be happy to have you back when that comes out. Great. For now, thank you so much. For, uh, Thanks, Coleman. Yeah. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode of Conversations with Coleman, guys. As always, Thanks for watching, and feel free to tell me what you think by reviewing the podcast, commenting on social media, or sending me an email. To check out my other social media platforms, click the cards you see on screen, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. See you next time. But I think it's a mistake to seek that form of recognition by... uh, really thinking of yourself in terms of your particular intersection of identities. Because when we want to feel seen in society, it's also as individuals. It's as people with idiosyncratic tastes, uh, the way we make a joke, the the, the kind of preferences we have, the things we value. One Mm -hmm. of the ways to think about that is that your sibling might have very similar intersection of identities than you do. But you want to be seen as separate from your sibling because you're not your sibling. Because what makes you you is also what sets you apart from your sibling. And so I think it's not just a political trap, actually. Mm. It's a personal trap as well. It, it inspires people to seek that recognition that we desperately need in, 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 in forms of reductive self-descriptions mm-hmm. that actually will never quite satisfy. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Yasha Monk. Yasha is a German-born political scientist, author, 
and lecturer known for his research on the rise of populism and the challenges to liberal democracy. He has authored several influential books, including Stranger in My Own Country, The People versus Democracy, and his new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. A few episodes ago, I had Christopher Rufo on the podcast to discuss his analysis of why wokeness came to dominate so many institutions. Yash is asking the same question in this book, but he's coming to a different answer. Yasha focuses less on people like Herbert Marcuse and more on intellectuals like Michel Foucault, Edward Said, Derek Bell, and Kimberly Crenshaw. We also talk about why there are so many former Marxists in the writing world, but so few people who convert into Marxism later in life. We talk about how Foucault's critique of language differs from George Orwell's critique of language, and much more. I really recommend getting a physical copy of his book because of its complexity and just sitting down with it. It's really one of those books that's important to actually read rather than listen to a conversation. In any event, without further ado, Yasha Monk. Okay, Yasha Monk. Thanks so much for coming back on my show. I'm looking forward to coming. Okay, so we're here to talk about your new book, The Identity Trap. I, I never do this. I never can like... Well, please Hold do. to the camera. Yeah, do it. Show <laughs> it proudly because it's a great book. Um, it's broadly about a topic I cover a lot on this podcast, which is, uh, you know, the evolution of the the ideology that has become very popular on the left in the past several decades that goes by many different names, uh, wokeness, identity politics, etc. But your book has a, a really... A really deep and I think interesting sort of uh, history of ideas about how we came to be here. And I just had Chris Rufo on my podcast, who has a different story. So um, my sort of uh, my most loyal listeners will have just heard a kind of different version of this story from Rufo, and we'll get to his account in a bit. But before we do that, can you kind of uh, you know? tell my audience why you came to care about this particular uh, set of ideas and how it links up with your previous books, which were one, one of which was about, you know, kind of right-wing populism and democracy. And the, the other was a, more about, you know, how diverse democracies can su succeed. So how'd you come to this new book? Yeah. So as you're saying, I'm sort of a democracy crisis hipster. So I was worried about the crisis of democracy before it was cool. Yeah. Um, before Donald Trump was elected and all of those things. Um, and, uh, you know, so I worry a lot about threats to the basic liberal institutions that I think sustain a country like the United States and mm -hmm. make it, despite all of its real flaws, a great place to live. Mm -hmm. Um you know, a lot of the threats to that do come from the far right and from authoritarians like Donald Trump or Narendra Modi in India and Recep Erdogan in Turkey and all of those kinds of figures. And that's definitely one of the things that I continue to be concerned about. I just wrote an article a few days ago about uh, the upcoming Polish elections and the way in which the sort of authoritarian populist government there has uh, eroded democratic institutions and is likely to destroy them if it gets reelected. Mm -hmm. um, but I came to worry about some of these developments that you chronicle so well on this podcast and in other writings uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one is that uh, I care about beating those kind of right-wing populists. And mm -hmm. I think when mainstream institutions uh, are increasingly captured 
by an irrational ideology that is deeply unpopular, uh, when a lot of people lose trust in what people say on TV and what you know what decisions uh, uh, government officials make and 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 how uh, the other political alternatives are going to govern because of the hold that these ideas have over our social life, that actually empowers those figures on the right. So mm-hmm. even though they are quite different in the nature of their ideas, one is the yin to the other's yang. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I care about these ideas because I think the stakes are significant in themselves. You know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm an academic and a writer. I care about the kind of ideas that are governing our public sphere, our social life, our universities. And when there's a new ideology that has been adopted at incredibly rapid pace without people really interrogating it in a serious way, with an amazing daft of serious, uh, earnest engagement with those ideas, then, then, then that's concerning in itself. And it's particularly concerning when I think it's inspiring all kinds of destructive uh, norms and uh, uh, habits uh, and customs um, in our schools, in our uh, universities, in our corporations. Um, you know, to give one example, many elite private schools in the country now have uh, teachers come in in first grade, second grade, and divide kids up by race. Say, if you're black, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're Asian American, you go over there. And by the way, if you're white, you go over there. There And when we try and teach those people, as the name of one uh, particularly influential organization uh, puts it, to embrace race, to mm-hmm. think of themselves as racial beings, to mm-hmm. double down for the white kids on their white identity, to own the whiteness. Mm-hmm. Now, the goal of that is to build a more tolerant society where we're going to fight against injustice. The goal of that is to, to, to inspire anti-racists. I think it's much more likely to lead to zero-sum conflict in the heart of our society and to uh, inspire people to be uh, racist or white supremacists rather mm-hmm. than anti-racists. So I mm-hmm. think that these things have important stakes in their own terms as well. Mm. I think the difference between the threat from the right and the threat from the left, at least among my network and the people I've known in my life is that the threat from the right is generally more obvious to most people. And again, that's a statement relative to my own situation, having grown up in a blue area, having lived in and around New York City my whole life. The threat from the right, the threat from racism is a wolf in wolf's clothing. The threat from you know, separating kids by race with the aim of teaching them to quote unquote embrace race. That is a lot more confusing to people because some people, I think some people fall for what you would call the identity trap in your book. They fall for the trap of believing that this is the way to fight racism. This is um, the way to stand up to to bigotry on the right. Uh, and, And so that's why I spend more time critiquing it. Yeah, and, and that's why I call it a trap, by the way. I thought really hard about what to name this book. And I think mm-hmm. the identity trap is the right name because it's about all of these new ideas about identity, and I'm sure we'll get into detail with them. But it's a trap because a trap mm-hmm. has something attractive. It has a lure, mm-hmm. right? It's saying, hey, this is the most radical, you know, the most principled, uh, the most uncompromising way to fight against things that really are problem, against racism and homophobia and discrimination and against all of those kinds of things. That is what mm-hmm. lures people in. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The part of a trap is also that once you, you know, see a piece of cheese and you, you, you go towards it, you're going to be trapped, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the outcome is going to be bad for you. Uh, and in this case, I think it's also going to be bad for society. Now, part of it is this political trap that uh, a lot of progressive organizations have torn themselves apart because of their internal meltdowns, making it harder for them to sustain their missions. Mm-hmm. That... Um, you know, when you encourage people to embrace race, you might be trying to build a more tolerant society, but actually you might build a zero-sum conflict in which precisely the historically dominant continue to win out. Mm-hmm. Um, you might think that this is the most radical way to oppose Trump, but actually you're going to make it easier for him to win again in 2024. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a personal trap in important ways, I think. Um, you know, I think it's true that most people, not everybody perhaps, but nearly everybody, seeks a form of recognition. They want a form of respect in society. They want to feel seen in society. Mm-hmm. And of course, in a society that says, if you're you know, a member of this group, you're inferior somehow, or we have these terrible views about who you are, it's going to be hard to do. So of course, we need to oppose those forms of uh, people being deprecated. But I think it's a mistake to seek that form of recognition by uh, really thinking of yourself in terms of your particular intersection of identities. Because Mm -hmm. when we want to feel seen in society, it's also as individuals. It's as people with idiosyncratic tastes, uh, the way we make a joke, the the, the kind of preferences we have, the things we value. One Mm -hmm. of the ways to think about that is that your sibling might have very similar intersection of identities than you do, but you want to be seen as separate from your sibling because you're not your sibling, because what makes you you is also what sets you apart from your sibling. And so I think it's not just a political trap, actually. Mm. It's a personal trap as well. It, it inspires people to seek that recognition that we desperately need in, 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 in forms of reductive self-descriptions mm-hmm. that actually will never quite satisfy Hmm. Yeah, so autobiographically, I I graduated high school and entered college right at the time where these kinds of racial separatist you know, rituals were going on. So I, I had one at my high school probably around 